The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Great, Father. Great to be here. Good to see you again. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Father, we've uh, covered a lot of topical subjects in the last couple programs, so I was hoping tonight we could get through some viewer email, because uh, we have a lot of great ones in the inbox that have been in there for far too long, so hopefully we can mm. get through as many of these as possible. Uh, the first one I'd like to read, <clears throat> Father, is from a viewer who asks, if a Catholic in good conscience could attend the Mass of a priest who is in the conciliar church, yet completely denies the heresies of the Novus Ordo Church. Uh, he says, in other words, does a priest necessarily need to join some truly traditional priestly organization if he professes the same exact beliefs as those priests? Well, Tom, I think I'd amend the question somewhat, and that is not whether a priest needs to join another organization, but whether he should continue to be a member of an organization that professes heresy. And I think that's probably more to the point. So if there is a, a Novus Ordo priest, uh, so-called, right, who actually disavows all the heresies of the Novus Ordo, and he recognizes that they're heresies, the question is, why does he continue to uh, profess to be a uh, card-carrying official member of heretical, <laughs> representing heresy? Um, from the sound of it, I mean, I'm, I have to assume certain things, uh, if the individual were here, I'd, I'd have a couple of questions to ask. And one of them would be, well, are you talking about a, uh, a Novus Ordo priest, so-called, who was ordained in the Novus Ordo, trained and ordained in the Novus Ordo? And I would say, well, in the first place, the, the new order right of ordination is very questionable. Despite what others might pretend, it's very questionable, right? And it depends upon... Uh, the right also of the consecration of the Novus Ordo bishops who ordained the Novus Ordo priests. So you have two layers of questions going into the even the validity of the ordination. You know, I'm not saying that they, all the Novus Ordo priests are necessarily invalidly ordained. I'm saying that there is a very serious question about the validity of these of these ordinations uh, that really require not only a lot of study. But only the traditional Catholic Church can actually answer the question of whether the changes made, and there were changes made, in the rites of ordination of the priests and ordination and consecration of bishops, there were changes made, and some say substantial changes. And uh, not only that, but if you have uh, Novus Ordo bishops who are freelancing and kind of um, uh, making the ceremony personal with, you know, putting their own stamp on it, you might have further changes too. So there's some serious questions involved here. 
especially serious since in 1947, Pope Pius XII issued a motu proprio, which has been considered infallibly uh, decreed and uh, enjoined, and that is sacramentum ordinis, in which he specifically laid out the exact words uh, and actions, right, the matter and form, that is necessary for the valid ordination of deacons, valid ordination of priests, and the valid consecration of bishops. So, uh, I mean, this is a very serious question, obviously. So, right there, you have a problem if you have the Novus Ordo priest who's ordained in the Novus Ordo, certainly trained in the Novus Ordo with the Novus Ordo theology and so on, um, who says, well, I disavow the heresies of the Novus Ordo and I'm going to be a traditional, a real traditional Catholic priest. And you have to ask, well, let's look at the ordination. Let's make sure there are no doubts about that. And then, but we also have to ask, well, why are you continuing in the Novus Ordo if you disavow the, uh, the, 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 basically the Novus Ordo, the New Order. Um, there are questions too. I mean, is, is he saying these liturgies at, at a table in a Novus Ordo church? Um, I mean, if he is, again, you know, he wouldn't want anything to do with that. Um, and um, if there are just a number of other questions, you know, yeah. that, that come to mind. Um, and, um, you know, the question is, uh, how, how is he carrying on this, out this feat of trying to be traditional within the Novus Ordo and not having to reach into some tabernacle somewhere and bring out hosts, quote-unquote, consecrating the Novus Ordo? Is he leaving hosts that he consecrates in the tabernacle or what passes for a tabernacle for Novus Ordo priests, other priests in the um, parish, if he is in a parish, uh, to to distribute. Um, uh, what else does he have to do? Does he have to go through the motions and pretend that the Novus Ordo is fine and just uh, convince his people to go along with it and the marriage annulments and all the other bogus things they, they turn out? What does he have to go along with? I'm just saying you can't really mix the traditional faith and the traditional religion with the Novus Ordo without sacrilege. And I just find it hard to imagine a situation in which uh, a clergyman like that could actually be free of all uh, involvement with the Novus Ordo and its practices, uh, at least uh, holding it up uh, as though it were somehow Catholic and compatible with the Catholic faith. Okay. Okay. So my answer would be no, don't, don't do that. Sure, of course. Okay. okay. Uh, Father, since priests are so scarce, can a priest hear confessions via electronic means? No. Why not? Because the very least you can say about that also is it would be doubtful. Uh, you know, a person has to be morally present um, in order to receive a sacrament. Um, sometimes that moral presence can be like, by, such as by proxy in a marriage, for example. There's, that's the only situation where I know, the only sacrament where I've heard of where the church allows a proxy. I don't think you can be baptized by proxy. I don't think there's any question of that. I never saw any question about that come up, or ordained by proxy. Um, and uh, th there's, no, there's no talk whatsoever in any of the moral theology manuals I've ever heard of that talk about being, or, uh, being absolved by proxy. Um, so what kind of moral uh, presence would there be for somebody you know, calling up on the telephone or um, you know, sending his uh, list of his sins in by email or... Or whatever. So I, I don't think there's anything the church has ever said that, that condoned that or, 
perhaps the question has been addressed. It's hard for me not to uh, think that it has been at least raised. The question has been raised. I don't know that it's been addressed, certainly not before Vatican II, mm-hmm. uh, in an authoritative way by the Church. Uh, although, you know, even then, might, one might find a decree of a, a ruling by the Roman Rota or something like that, which would say that, no, this is not permitted. But I know of absolutely no indication uh, from the Church that that has ever been permitted or been regarded as valid. And that's true even with all of the modern uh, inventions <clears throat> we have, like, like the, the video chat uh, tape. Well, again, I mean, you know, we're talking about the modern stuff, uh, as it were, the modern uh, means of communication. And uh, I'm talking before Vatican II, so I'm, you know we're talking about two different things here. But uh, as in that, in in any case, uh, you're right. If we're going to be talking about even the Novus Ordo and the modern means of communication, I don't think the Novus Ordo itself has ever condoned uh, confession uh, or the, what they call the right of reconciliation <laughs> with uh, by, by telephone or by email or. Teleconferencing uh, tele- or anything like that. Okay. I don't know of any any such uh, decision, even by the Novus Ordo. All right. Okay. <laughs> um, then another question. Um, since Saint Pius V codified the Rosary, is there then only one way to say the Rosary? Uh, it says everyone has their own variations of the Rosary, but I've only said it said it in its original form without the Fatima prayer. So is that correct, Father, or am I saying the rosary incorrectly by omitting the Fatima prayer? Well, I don't think you could actually argue that you're saying it incorrectly because before the Fatima prayer came to be, Catholics have been praying the rosary for centuries. It was given to St. Dominic, as you know, and then with the, uh, of course, the Apostles' Creed, the Our Father, the Three Hail Marys, the Glory Be to the Father, and uh, then the Five Decades for each one of the three sets of mysteries, that, that is the traditional rosary, ending with the Hail Holy Queen. Uh, one might find in history that there has been a certain, uh, some changes that have come in, um, but I think you'd find them to be very slight. The addition of the prayer, uh, Fatima, uh, oh my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, was an addition, and it doesn't diminish the rosary, not to have that. Right? Um, it's still the rosary if you don't have that prayer. People add to the end of the rosary also the, um, the memorari and the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel that is purely gratuitous and uh, an act of personal piety to do that. It's not part of the rosary though. There are actually those who speak against adding prayers because they don't want uh, um, they don't want people actually ad-libbing and editorializing with the rosary too much to make it more cumbersome. Um, so um, anyway, uh, but it certainly is, there's nothing wrong at all with adding the memorari and adding the prayer to St. Michael, don't get me wrong. But the fact is that the actual rosary itself consists of the prayer as it came, has come to us down through Saint, from St. Saint Dominic. Mm-hmm. And uh, that does not include the prayer of Our Lady of Fatima, the memorari at the end, or the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel at the end. Laudable as they are, helpful as they are, and pious as they are, uh, and a source of grace, too. They are not actually officially part of the rosary. Right. Okay. 
Right, uh, moving on. Father, one of our viewers writes in and says that she has been diagnosed with cancer, so we will certainly keep her in our prayers. But she asks, mm -hmm. uh, what does the church teach about the toxicity of chemotherapy? The toxicity of chemotherapy, well, I, I don't know if the church teaches uh, specifically about that, but I gather she's asking about uh, whether the church would approve or condemn taking a substance which is harmful, toxic, possibly deadly, right? And, uh, of course, medically, the, the, the whole idea of taking chemotherapy is to try to kill the cancer before uh, the cancer kills you. And uh, to kill the cancer without having the chemotherapy kill you, right? So, um, the concept itself is not evil. I don't know of any case where the church has condemned the idea of uh, chemotherapy, even though it is a matter of truly uh, introducing a toxin into the, into the body, right? And definitely adversely affecting the metabolism of the body. It definitely um, has some very serious effects on the body. The body actually reacts to it as though it's been poisoned. As, as far as I know, I've never had chemotherapy, by the grace of God, but you know, plenty, plenty of people who have, you had to make that choice whether to take it or not, and those who've taken it. And they say they feel as though they've been poisoned. But the idea is that the chemotherapy is designed to attack the cancer, the tumor. And they try to administer it in such a way that it preserves the life of the individual, uh, the patient, and hopefully um, destroys the, the, the cancerous cells within. Not always successful. You know, one would have to uh, do some serious studies, and I'm sure there are some serious, serious studies done about the, the benefit of the various um, chemotherapy drugs that are given. Um, you know, if one were to ask, well, does one have an obligation to take the chemotherapy? That's a different question. If one is diagnosed with cancer and they're told, but you have statistically five years to live with this cancer in this, in this stage um, of uh, the cancer's growth and in this stage of your life, um, you know, there, there is the serious question to ask, well, well, do I have a moral obligation to take this or not? One might weigh the factors and say, well, if I take it, it's going to affect me in these ways. It's all going to be negative. What is the likelihood that it's going to destroy the cancer and uh, restore me to health? Um, what is the likelihood of it actually not destroying the cancer, but just basically weakening me to the point where I can't even live a, a life anymore? Uh, one might say, what other alternatives are there? Are there other benign alternatives which could... Uh, give me a reasonable hope of fighting the cancer and still being relatively healthy, you know, in the process. Um, so generally when people ask me if, if they have a moral obligation to take the, uh, the uh, chemotherapy, a lot of it has to depend upon the, um, the effectiveness, whether it's safe and effective, you know, as the expression goes these days, um, and what hope they have that it will help them to survive the cancer uh, what their obligations are to remain alive, who depends on them, who needs them to be there. And, um, you know, if you weigh all these factors, you might go to the conclusion, well, 
a person would not have an obligation to take the chemotherapy because of the ravages of the chemotherapy, because there's an alternative, which is very hopeful and much less toxic and much less uh, damaging. And they may not necessarily have a number of people, including little children, who depend on them. So all those factors have to be considered. But to my knowledge, I, I don't know of the church actually pronouncing on the morality of or the immorality of chemotherapy or the concept of chemotherapy is introducing a toxin into the body um, because the, the whole purpose of it is to destroy the life-threatening cancer while preserving the life mm -hmm. of, the, of the patient. Okay. All right, we're good. Thank you, Father. Um, one of our viewers wrote in and said she recently heard of a traditional Catholic priest giving someone the apostolic blessing. Mm -hmm. And uh, she asked, Father, could you explain what is the apostolic blessing? Where did it come from? What is the history of it? And uh, mm -hmm. fill us in a little bit on that. Well, there are a number of things that go under the term of apostolic blessing. When a Pope says St. Pius X would extend his apostolic blessing, pilgrims who came to Rome would actually um, maybe attend uh, uh, a meeting with him, an audience, and um, receive his apostolic blessing personally, uh, directly. There might be those who then would go to Rome and obtain actually a certificate of the Pope granting his apostolic blessing and actually then have that certificate delivered to them in various parts of the world. Let's say, let's say someone was not able to, able to go to Rome, but uh, perhaps they were celebrating a 50th wedding anniversary or some other great event. And uh, they would petition for that, and uh, the Holy Father, let's say Pope Pius XII, would, would grant them an apostolic blessing, even from yeah, across the ocean, you know. And the certificate of that would be delivered to them and certifying that. And, um, but there's an apostolic blessing that even a priest can give. Uh, that is to someone who is in uh, articulo mortis. Uh, in order for a, pers uh, a person to be validly anointed with the sacrament of extreme unction. They have to be in periculo mortis, as the Church says. They have to be in some reasonable danger of death. And that danger of death can't be from some external cause. For example, some might say, well, gee, I'm going to go on a long road trip and I'm driving down I-95 or I-75, and you know how that gets. It gets pretty, pretty dangerous, and so I, I need to be anointed uh, before I make my trip. You know, because I'm putting myself in danger of driving on the highway. Well, uh, that's an external cause. Uh, and no, you could not anoint one someone, someone for driving down the highway. Someone might even say, well, I'm going into battle and I need to be anointed. Well, the priest could even give a uh, kind of general absolution to, let's say, hundreds of, of troops on the deck of a ship. Um, uh, they would have to be truly contrite for their sins and receive absolution and and have a penance, of course. But they could not all be anointed, though, because, again, that's an external danger. When the Church has internal danger, that that is a threat to life, it has to be from something internal. That is to say, uh, because of the person's age, because of the person's, uh, because of an injury that they've suffered that is actually life-threatening, because of an illness that they're enduring, which is life-threatening. And you might say, well, what does that mean? We well, would say, 
if it's reasonable that someone would die, and you wouldn't be surprised if they died. I mean, in practical order, there are different ways to express it. But perhaps um, it might be e more easily grasped if one, were to say, if one were to say, well, would you be surprised if Mr. Schnickelfritz were to actually pass away from this illness? And uh, you got the medical answer, well, no, actually, this is a lethal illness, and it could take it, someone's life. Um, if it weren't treated successfully or properly. So they actually are in that condition, or this wound is such that it could well be a lethal wound. Or this person at that age, let's say they're 115 years old, and you would say, well, I don't know, uh, from day to day, you know, no one would be surprised from one day to the next whether or not they would survive. And if they didn't survive, so again, in a case like that, you would have the ability to proceed with anointing them with extra unction. That's being in the danger of death. Now notice, it's different to be in articulo mortis, which is for the apostolic benediction. And that means you're actually closer to death. It's, it's, it's more proximate. <coughs> um, so that they might even be in the process of dying or you know, expected to undergo that process very soon. Now, generally speaking, the practice is that if you can anoint somebody, you go ahead and administer the sacrament or the, the apostolic blessing for them. Generally speaking, at least that's the practice that I've seen, uh, anyway. But um, that is um, a blessing that a priest can give when someone is in true danger of death, and um, generally is preceded by um, confession and uh, absolution. Uh, receiving our Lord in Holy Communion, often in Viaticum, uh, most often in Viaticum, <laughs> and, uh, and then the Sacrament of Extermunction as well, that they are anointed. Now, of course, receiving Holy Communion requires that they be conscious. You can absolve somebody of their sins if you have any reasonable hope that they are sorry for their sins. If they're comatose, you ask them to squeeze your hand or give some sign of repentance for their sins, but they might not even be able to respond to that. Sometimes, while well, you see if they've been practicing their faith and they have expressed their um, sorrow for sin and their love for God and desire to die in the state of grace, and, um, there's, a, there's a solid indication then that they have true contrition for their sin and you proceed by absolving them, even if they're not conscious. And um, then if they can receive our Lord and Holy Communion, uh, then you would give them our, the Blessed Sacrament as Viaticum. Then you anoint them with the holy oil. And um, the, the benefit, I would even say the genius of the Sacrament of Extreme Unction, is not only that it has as its secondary object the health of the body, as well as the health of the soul, as the primary objective, but uh, the theology of the Church tells us that the Sacrament of Extreme Unction can revive. What does that mean? Well, let's say you absolve somebody who does not have contrition for sins. Then, in giving them that absolution, they are not forgiven because they don't have contrition. But then you proceed to anoint them, and you anoint them with the holy oil when they're, let's say, unconscious. And they may come around, and uh, by the grace of God, they may actually make an act of contrition. And by virtue of the sacrament of extreme unction that you've given to them, the graces revive and they receive the forgiveness of sins, even mortal sins, at that moment that they make the act of contrition 
in their hearts. They don't have to say it by words, but they have to make a true act of contrition, an act of the will, repenting of their sins. And the sacrament of extremunction will obtain the forgiveness of sins for them, even after it's been given, if they were not even disposed to receive it at the time. It's a very powerful sacrament. It's a very big mistake to fail to receive it or obtain it for someone you love. But after that, then the next step is to grant the apostolic benediction. And uh, there's a special formula for that, but what it comes down to really is um, on behalf of the church itself, the priest imparts a plenary indulgence, a blessing which includes a plenary indulgence to that soul for all of the temporal punishment due to its sins. That's quite a powerful thing. Uh, Not only is it given for that particular danger, but if the person recovers, as often happens with the sacrament of extra motion, it's extremely powerful. Um, That apostolic benediction remains with that person throughout life. and becomes effective when they actually do die. They might live another 10, 15, 20, 30 years or more. But having received the apostolic benediction at that moment, it, it actually carries with them. So that when God does call them, the apostolic benediction actually accompanies them to judgment. So um, I've actually anointed people and given them the apostolic benediction, and they were so, so happy. They were so grateful. <laughs> You'd think that they'd more than won the, the lottery, you know, <laughs> just because they were able to receive the apostolic benediction. And um, I, I can understand that. I mean, from a spiritual point of view, yes, it, it is uh, just wonderful. But this is what our Lord Jesus Christ provided for us through his church, his true church. And... Um, now, of course, they've adulterated it with the, sacrament, the, the anointing of the sick, which completely obviates the idea that you're in danger of going before, to judgment. You know, um, it's basically simply, you know, treating somebody for an illness. And um, the, um, the very mention of it, uh, you know, the, the, what are the, the anointing of the sick, seems to focus on their physical illness rather than on their spiritual well-being. So, um, in any case, um, uh, Tom, I, I guess that more or less answers the question, I hope. Yeah, do you happen to have the text of the, of the Apostolic Benediction file? Oh, I do, actually. I do have it here. Great. Why, you want to receive uh, it? <laughs> no, but I just love to hear it. Well, I don't know if you can say the entire thing. I mean, okay. there's a... Uh, sure. Uh, sprinkled with holy water and the asparagus, right? And then the Kyrie eleison, Christi eleison, the Paternoster, silently. And then some versicles, and then a prayer beginning with the words, Clementissime Deus, the most merciful God, Father of mercies. And there's a very beautiful prayer. Then the priest prays the Confitior, just as you would at Mass, uh, with the Miseriatur and the Indulgentiam. And uh, then there's an invocation of our Lord. And uh, it, it mentions our Lord giving the power of the keys to St. Peter the Apostle, the power of binding and loosing. And it calls upon him that, uh, you know, those, the one who is actually repented of his sins uh, being restored to the first stole of innocence, basically. It's like God puts that stole of the priesthood over them almost. But a kind of stole of innocence they received at their baptism. So their, their, their baptism, in a sense, is... Uh, they return to their baptismal innocence. Uh, I don't know how else to put it here. And it says, therefore, uh, I, by the faculty granted me by the apostolic see, 
concede to thee the uh, indulgence, plenary indulgence and remission of all sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And um, there are, uh, there's an emergency form, a shortened form, when death is imminent. And there's even a shorter form when death is immediate, right? when the person is actually breathing his last. So the Church, even in granting us this ceremony of the apostolic benediction, uh, you know, wants to make so sure that we get it, that even if you are breathing your last, the priest can give it to you right there. So it's uh, quite beautiful, quite powerful, and I pray that all of us will have the benefit of receiving it. Um, now we know that the Church also grants plenary indulgences at the moment of death to those who uh, pray the name of Jesus three times, pronouncing the holy name of Jesus three times with faith, because the name means Savior. It's actually calling upon the Savior, Jesus. Um, and so the Church grants even a plenary indulgence for that. Pious action, even if with the last breath of life you call upon our Lord's name. Uh, you can eke that out three times. I was with uh, Archbishop, uh, rather Bishop Mendez as he was dying, and in the very process of his last breath, he repeated the holy name of Jesus with really? me three times. So. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing, Father. Thank you for yeah. that. Very beautiful. Um, if we could move on to a few questions we have about St. Joseph. Um, <clears throat> we had a viewer, very faithful viewer, write in and uh, say that we know St. Joseph must have died sometime between the finding of the child Jesus in the temple and the wedding feast at Cana, since he is no longer written about in the Bible. So are there any accounts by the saints of his death? And can Father Jenkins perhaps talk about our Lord and Our Lady at St. Joseph's deathbed and lessons that we can take away from it? Well, there are, uh, there are saints who have spoken of St. Joseph's uh, life and death, you know, uh, the private life, as it were. And, uh, during those years from the time of our Lord's, after our Lord turned 12 years old, right, had completed his 12th year until he began his public life at the age of 30, uh, there's not only the hidden life of our Lord, but certainly the hidden life of St. Joseph, too. Um, and there's no mention of him after, during our Lord's public life, except for the fact that our Lord was known to have been, or thought to have been, anyway, the son of Joseph, a carpenter. And there was a question about where he, where he got the learning that he had, right? for those who didn't know that he's truly the son of God. But other than that, I mean, St. Joseph's actual physical presence... Uh, uh, disappears from the Gospels at that point of uh, our Lord returning to Jerusalem to Nazareth, returning to Nazareth with the Blessed Mother and Joseph uh, after the finding of the temple. And so, uh, not much, nothing is known from divine revelation about it. There are private, alleged private revelations. There are those who spoke of Saint Joseph. I think Saint Bernardine of Siena uh, speaks of devotion to him, and there are pious legends, which I think are worthy of belief. Um, they have come down through the ages. Um, but uh, we don't know the circumstances of St. Joseph's death. All we, all we can gather implicitly from the Gospels is that St. Joseph died during those 18 years leading up to our Lord's public life, and he would have died there with the Blessed Mother and our Lord attending him. It's as far as we, we know, but we know that only implicitly. Mm -hmm. 
But we do know the veneration that the church had for St. Joseph. And uh, that speaks volumes to us, tells us what we need to know. But our Lord himself um, has shown us through his life with St. Joseph, but God the Father himself has shown us through divine revelation in sacred scripture of St. Joseph. Um, We know enough to have a tremendous veneration for him and uh, to learn from an example that he set in a very quiet, powerful way. So he's inspired Catholic men for all these generations over the last 2,000 years by his strength, by his fidelity, even by his silence, his thoughtfulness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure that answers the question, but... Uh, is, is it true, Father, yeah. that St. Joseph is the patron of a happy death and the, the patron saint of departing souls? Yes, he is. He's the patron saint of, uh, as you say, parting souls and a, and a blessed death because of the Church's uh, conviction that he died attended by none other than the Blessed Mother and, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, but St. Joseph remains a saint of the Old Testament in the sense that our Lord had not died on the cross. The redemption had not yet been completed when St. Joseph died. And St. Joseph's soul would have gone to limbo with uh, the limbo of the just, as it's called, uh, with with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the other great patriarchs, right? Mm-hmm. St. Joseph would have been numbered among them, but he probably had a certain preeminence among them. I mean, the others, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the rest, and all the prophets, certainly had a spiritual connection with our Lord, right? Some even had a physical connection uh, in terms of descendants, like David. So, But uh, none of them could say, well, God chose me to be the foster father of his very son on earth, to be the protector and guardian of his son on earth during his during his childhood years when he most needed a father. And um, so none, God did not choose me to stand in his place on earth, the place of God the Father over this divine son. But it is Joseph who was the guardian and protector of both the son of God and the very mother of God's own son. So the head of the Holy Family. I mean, that's a a unique place that St. Joseph uh, held by God's own choice. Um, That's quite spectacular when you think about it. Church has always regarded that as a very considerable um, testimony, as it were, divine testimony of the worthiness of St. Joseph. Father, why do we uh, refer to St. Joseph uh, as as saints, you know, as you mentioned, he's an Old Testament saint, and we have all of the other, as you mentioned, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of them. Why are they not referred to as saints, but St. Joseph is, even though they, they all, all of them died before they saw the sacrifice? Well, St. Gabriel, St. Raphael, St. Michael the Archangel, right? We refer to them as saints, too, don't we? Even St. John the Baptist. And St. John the Baptist, all the time, we refer to St. John the Baptist, absolutely. We even have a feast of the Holy Maccabees, right? And uh, so um, there's no problem with calling St. Joseph saint. Um, we have to realize that St. Joseph was not canonized, though. The canonization ceremony came in somewhat later. In the early years of the church, there were those who were just considered to be holy just because of their holiness. It was so absolutely, overwhelmingly obvious that it could not possibly be denied by anyone. Right? 
And uh, so the earliest saints, um, often martyrs, uh, were received by the church without necessarily a formal ceremony, just because their holiness was so manifest. And St. Joseph was one of those. His holiness was so manifest that there was just never a question mm-hmm. on the part of any Christian about the, the holiness of St. Joseph and that he is in heaven today. Um, could you talk about St. Abraham, uh, St. Isaac, and St. Jacob? I mean, the church's tradition is that they were saved. Um, you could, um, but it's just not the customary practice to do so. Only a very s- small handful of those who uh, lived in the Old Testament and died before the redemption are considered uh, to have such a, 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 an all-encompassing holiness because of their special vocation that uh, they are referred to by the title saint by the church and given feast days. Um, saint John the Baptist, as you mentioned, was, our Lord even said, no, no greater man has been born of woman than St. John the Baptist. You know? And John the Baptist died as a martyr for the sanctity of the marriage vows, and uh, standing up and testifying, that, testifying to the Lamb of God who'd come into the world as a redeemer. And uh, so Saint Joseph also, I mean, he was uh, held up from the very beginning by Christians throughout the world. That means the Church, actually, the body of the Church, as being a paragon of sanctity and worthy of emulation and uh, veneration by the faithful as an intercessor before God. Um, now, you know, in the course of time, the, the uh, canonization ceremony came to be what it is as an act of the supreme magisterium of the Church. And, you know, if you look at the old dogmatic theology books and uh, the De Ecclesia, uh, they would give you the very strong argument that the, the um, canonization of a saint was an infallible act. Only recently with... Francis and um, his uh, his uh, canonizations uh, hasn't even come into question because now those who are following Francis have to somehow explain how he could be canonizing these people, you know, under those circumstances. So they have, so they have to say, well, it can't be infallible, right? It's not an infallible act. So they have to start making an arg- argument why, no, 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 that's that's not true. It can't be infallible. But uh, that just kind of is more of a commentary on their estimation of Francis than it is on the actual teaching of the church. Yeah. So, um, but the canonization process began as the church spread. It was kind of a natural development of a supernatural reality, though. I mean, in the sense that when you start with the supernatural character of, of saints coming into being, God making them by grace, and them passing from this life to judgment and going to heaven, then as the church spread, it was almost necessary that there be some formal process. Um, when the church became so large, you had you know, expanding continents, and uh, souls were being proposed for canonization, the church had to institute a formal process of investigation, which would rule out any possibility of, of error from a natural point of view. And then finally, there would have to be some authoritative statement by the supreme authority of the church to say this person is in heaven and their life is as evident in their life is evident uh, heroic virtue and they are intercessors in heaven and we can invoke their help before the throne of God and we can follow the example that they set 
And only since the Novus Ordo has that fallen into uh, disrepute because of the recklessness and the disregard they have for, well, what amounts to true sanctity. You know, and they, anyway, enough said there. Okay, okay. then another topic. Father, we actually had a couple questions asking your opinion on the Haydock Bible and the commentary therein, and if you would recommend it as a good choice for traditional Catholics. I do, I do. It's, a, it's actually uh, actually based upon the what is called popularly the Douay Reims Bible. Uh, we know that pronunciation is rather uh, inappropriate, rather, what should I say, Americanized right? yes, or yes, anglicized. Yes. But uh, the Douay Reims Bible um, is truly a, a very Catholic Bible. It is endorsed by the Catholic Church as being without error against the faith and can be read with um, confidence that it expresses the uh, the infallible teachings of God inspiring, right, in sacred scripture. And um, so Haydock, uh, George Leo Haydock was a clergyman, actually he was born, I think, uh, what, 1720, what was it, 17, forget, anyway, he died in 1749, I believe, I'm not mistaken. So he had um, been around for a while, uh, as a kind of a scion of a Catholic recusant family. That is a family that refused to knuckle under to the persecution and give up their faith, all through Elizabethan times and so on. So um, there was a lot of Catholic heroism in the family. And um, he, um, he uh, actually became a priest and dedicated so much of his life to commenting on and compiling commentary from the fathers of the church on the sacred scriptures. And so what you find in the Hadak Bible is the Douay Rings translation of the Bible with the, all those commentaries that were gathered over years and years of scholarly study by uh, Father George Leo Hadak. And uh, so many references to the statements of the fathers. You know, you, you're familiar, Tom, with the uh, the golden chain, the Catena Aurea, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, of uh, taking the Gospels of the Sundays and commenting on them, but the, the, not himself so much, but the, the sayings of the fathers of the church in the earliest centuries. Well, Father Hadock tried to do that with this, directly with the scriptures in his own life. So it certainly is a monumental work. Uh, his life is very interesting, too, by the way. So if anybody were to want to... I, I don't know if there's a biography of Father George Leo Haydock or not, but there should be. Perhaps you could write that, or I'll see what maybe me, Charlotte, could write that <laughs> for a book report, been writing the book. But in any case, uh, it's worthy of study. He actually, after all of his scholarship and all of his writings, he finally wound up being assigned to a very, very poor little chapel somewhere, and uh, was actually begging for help, you know, to keep it going. And uh, he, even there, though, his scholarship did not suffer because he, he kept records of what was happening in England at the time with regard to the Catholic faith. And um, those records are very revealing, not only in terms of the, let's say, the overall picture of the church in England, but also the day-to-day minutiae and, and um, dealings with the Catholic people of the time, 
uh, under those circumstances. And uh, so it's, it, I say minutia, the individual vignettes that he records there are interesting and very revealing about the life of a Catholic priest in Elizabethan England and post-Elizabethan England during that time. Um, so I, I think it'd be very worthy, maybe not, not only to uh, have a biography above him, but even a documentary, perhaps you could star. As, <laughs> you know, still young enough to do that. Right? <laughs> okay. I'd like to see it done anyway. Okay, Father. Uh, okay, well, um, one of those same viewers just asked, Father, while we're on the topic, uh, what do you think of the Bishop Chaloner version of the Dewey Reims Bible? And also, she mentions the Troy version. Right, well, I've heard various things, uh, and but I'd rather not comment on that because I don't know whether the things I've heard are actually accurate or not. Uh, I started actually investigating that. I didn't get very far without getting interrupted. I'd like to know more about it before. Because if, if you could just set that aside for the time being, we'll come sure. back to it. Sounds good. I'll try to do m my homework uh, on it. Okay. Well, Father, anything else you'd like to add tonight? We got through. Prayers. Okay. We hear from uh, some good traditional priests around the world who are very ill right now and need our prayers. One does not want to be named because she has reason to be concerned about the authorities causing trouble for him and his flock, not even in this country, actually. But um, I do ask prayers for Jeanette Delalo. Uh, Father Stephen Delalo's mother passed away this past week. So please uh, keep her dear soul in your prayers. Now I hear that Father Delalo is very ill with COVID and might even be hospitalized. I hear that he wasn't able, I heard that he wasn't even able to attend his mother's funeral. So, a dear friend, uh, Father Stephen DeLalo, a very fine priest of many years, uh, please pray for him as well. There are a number of other priests I've mentioned in the past also, and I mentioned Father Greenwell, of course. Father Greenwell is my associate here, um, is uh, still quite ill, but he's doing much better, thank goodness. He's received a lot of very good care, which has kept him out of the hospital, thank goodness. Uh, but... Um, uh, he still has a long way to go before he has the strength necessary to resume the former duties. We hope he can eventually. So please keep him and Father Bomberger in your prayers. Father Bomberger is recovering also still after months of uh, the effects of this. Um, also, please be sure to um, remember Mr. and Mrs. Lorenzano, Michael and Livia Lorenzano, who are, well, we're praying for a full recovery from covid uh, Mike himself is very ill, though, in intensive care on it, so he's going to require a lot of our in insistent prayer for his, for his welfare. Pray for his loved ones, too, who are suffering with him over this, certainly. And, uh, of course, we have Stephen Sigiarto, who is suffering with cancer. God bless him, and God bless him, his family. We have, uh, actually, the mother of uh, Rita Davidson in Canada, who's quite ill. But now she's home and doing better. And uh, see, she, she's gotten out of the hospital. She's being cared for at home by loving hands, and that makes all the difference. <laughs> Father Greenwell was able to avoid going into the hospital, uh, but others have not been so fortunate to avoid that. One of those is, is uh, Ray Sasicki, who, like uh, Mike uh, Lorenzano, is in intensive care on a ventilator right now, but he's showing signs of progress. Please pray for Ray and his family as well. Uh, we just hope and pray that um, 
where the medical care is good, it'll be effective, and where it's not, that they'll survive in spite of it. In spite of it, necessarily. If it takes a miracle to do so. So, uh, ask God's mercy on all, and uh, health to all of us who have successfully avoided it so far. Um, a number of people, quite a number I know, who have had it, have uh, recovered rather handily from it, and uh, now have a natural immunity to it. That is pretty obvious because they remain untouched by it. Unfortunately, there are those who uh, have gone to get uh, vaccinated by it, and uh, there, there's a very high incidence of breakthrough uh, infections now. And uh, actually, as the nurses actually on the floor of the hospitals are telling us that the majority of those who are in the hospital now with these cases of COVID-19 are actually people who are fully vaccinated. These are things that you're not going to be told on the mainstream media because they want to blame the unvaccinated for the problem. But actually, what we're hearing from uh, uh, virologists and immunologists and so on is that the vaccine is a leaky vaccine and it, it enables the virus to mutate and produce these variants in those who are vaccinated. And that puts them at a real danger. And they're witnessing what they're calling the epidemic or the pandemic of the vaccinated now. So if you know uh, people who've gotten vaccinated, and I know a number of very good people who've gotten vaccinated early on, um, long before they realized what we're dealing with here, who might be in danger. And we have to be, you know, very concerned about their welfare too and make sure that uh, by the grace of God, they, they're not adversely affected by this any more than we are. That's what we pray for. Yeah. So please keep praying. Pray for the United States of America. Pray for the world. Remember what Our Lady said. Tom will mention this again to you. Our Lady said two things of great importance. Well, she said much more than that, but two things particularly. Stop sinning. Don't offend God. And make reparation for those who do. Right? For those who do sin. For the sinners of the world. Um, do, not, do not offend God by sin. And make reparation for the offenses that are being uh, moment by moment, flung in the face of Almighty God in ingratitude by the by mankind here. Uh, consecrate yourself to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. With that, I'm going to turn the floor over to you, Tom, to sign off. Father, thank you for being here tonight. Certainly. appreciate that and everything you do. And thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching another episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.